You can have a seat. If you've got a Bible, uh, let's go to Galatians uh, chapter 4. Before we do that, let, let's pray. Lord, I pray now that you would uh, speak to us uh, through your word. Lord, we thank you that Jesus, the light of the world, has come to shine in the darkness. And I pray now that uh, your Holy Spirit would open our eyes, that the light of the glory of Christ uh, would shine in our hearts. God, speak to us, work in us, and cause us to respond to you in the way that we need to. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So this morning we're going to talk about uh, the heart of the Christmas story and when, uh, when, I, when I think about Christmas and, you know, just think about uh, the, the past and even now, you know, I think, I think Christmas is kind of a magical time, especially when you're a kid. I mean, when I was a kid, uh, like, I love Christmas so much, you know, the traditions and, of course, I think things were probably a little bit simpler uh, then in, in, in a lot of ways. I mean, uh, I'm old enough that my favorite Christmas present growing up was an electric football set. And some of you are like, what, is, what in the world is that? But, uh, you know, this is what you did before there was Madden and, and, and stuff like that. But, um, you know, just different, you know, desserts and things my mom would make. And then I probably drove my parents crazy because, you know, you try to get up at 3 o'clock in the morning because you wanted to find out what your presents were. Some of you may have experienced that today. Of course, I, I'd do that on Saturday morning. You know, my parents wanted, they were teachers, they want to sleep in and like I'd be up at five o'clock. Like, can I watch cartoons or something like that? So annoying, I'm sure. But um, anyway, but you know, there's just a lot of, you know, neat things when it comes to Christmas, you know, just different traditions, family stuff, uh, all of that. You know, there's kind of a religious version of this, too. You know, there's a story of a baby in a, in a, in a manger and this couple making this uh, journey and all these uh, things like that. And then, you know, a lot of times, uh, you know, you may have Christmas plays or choir performances, uh, things like that. I mean, some of my memories of Christmas uh, growing up or, you know, being in Christmas plays at church and different things. And, you know, that was usually fun. Uh, maybe not always. I guess I wasn't always as comfortable on stage as I am now because I remember one time when I was little in some kind of Christmas program at church, and I literally took a flying leap off the stage and ran out to my mama uh, in, in, in the crowd. So, uh, you know, maybe that's not uh, the best Christmas memory. But uh, I remember one time my grandmother had this, uh, shall we say, eccentric housekeeper who was supposed to be kind of taking care of her. She was the worst cook in the history of the world. But uh, I was in a Christmas program at church, and she came with my grandmother, and she literally, no exaggeration, held up the service for a few minutes because she was trying to make change out of the offering plate. <laughs> I don't know, maybe that's why we have offering boxes instead of offering <laughs> plates at, at True Life. But actually, that wasn't my idea. But... Um, but you know, just I have a lot of memories like that, you know, of, of Christmas and things like that. And, and all that's good, uh, but it's not really the heart of Christmas. And honestly, sometimes there can be kind of a shadow side to this as well. Because, you know, some people, Christmas or whatever holiday is not, maybe not a happy time because you're alone. Or maybe family is more painful than it's fun or helpful. 
Um, you know, maybe it's a time when your family gathers that really you're reminded of who's missing. Uh, maybe it's a time where giving gifts is either impossible or at least stressful because of financial situations. Maybe instead of joy and hope, you feel anxious and, and, and depressed. And, and, and what I'm saying is, whether this is a happy time or this is a challenging time, whether you think about Christmas in, in more of a secular tradition kind of way or more than a, 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 in a religious kind of way, I'm just saying that's the surface. And there's something deeper to it. And then that's what I want us to go in, in the time we have together this morning kind of beyond the surface, to go a little deeper and to really see what the heart uh, of the Christmas story is, uh, you know, what it's about. Because really, apart from Christmas, Easter doesn't mean anything. Really, apart from Christmas, there's no point to Christianity. Really, it's foundational to to everything else. It, it, It connects to everything else. And so, let me just give you what, we're going to look at Galatians 4, 1 through 7. We're just going to kind of walk through it uh, phrase by phrase. Not going to uh, you know, spend a ton of time on each one. But I just want to kind of give you the, the big idea of these seven verses in a nutshell, in a sentence. So really the heart of the Christmas story is God sending His Son to redeem us from our spiritual bondage in order to adopt us as His blessed children. Ultimately, the point of Christmas is Jesus coming to adopt us and to make us a part of the family of God. That's really what this is about. I mean, again, it's more than a sweet little story about Joseph and Mary and a baby in a manger and, and, and those kind of things. It's about redemption that brings adoption, that we were spiritual orphans, dead in our trespasses and sins. And through Jesus coming uh, as a man, living a perfect sinless life, dying on the cross, rising from the dead, we're raised up to spiritual life, adopted as sons and daughters of God, brought into a relationship with God where we know Him as their Father, we were filled with the Holy Spirit, that's what uh, really this text is saying. So let's unpack it, but you know, if you're tired from Christmas and fall asleep, there you go. You got the two-minute version of it. So first thing I want us to see, though, in verses 1 through 3, is that before we were redeemed by Jesus, that we were in spiritual bondage. And so Paul uses an analogy in these verses, and I'll try to simply, briefly explain it to us. It's a little complicated because it's, it's a little outside of our frame of reference. It, it's a cultural thing. So uh, just a, a little background before we read it. Um, and, and, you know, in that day and time, culturally, the, the primary person in, in terms of an inheritance and that kind of thing would have been the firstborn son. In, in, in Jewish culture, he would have gotten a double portion. He would have taken over the role as the leader, kind of the patriarch of the family when the father passed away. And it, it was similar in, in, in Roman culture. And so that's in the background of this. And so as you read the book of Galatians, as we read this text, you know, sometimes some Bible translations will go gender neutral. And there may be places where, you know, depending on the, the, the Greek text, that's okay. But that's not really helpful here because 
because there's something theological behind his use of the word sons here. It's not gender. In the previous chapter, he said, in Christ, we're neither male nor female. But he's using this analogy, and he's saying uh, in, in this analogy, like before the law, it's like spiritually, we're all, if we're in Christ, like firstborn sons. You can be a daughter of God, you can be a son of God, but there's really no second-class citizens. You're not like the 12th born or something like that, getting the leftovers. If you're in Christ, you're getting a double portion of the inheritance. You're getting everything that Jesus has for you, either male or female. So as you read this and you hear sons, you need to think that way. So he says here, now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. So, so here's the deal. In, in uh, you know, Roman Greek, Greek society here, you've got you know, a father who possessed everything. He had this son who was in line to inherit everything. I mean, it was going to all belong to him someday. But until the father appointed that time... When this uh, son was just a child, it was like he had nothing, and he had really no rights, he had no authority, but he was actually under the control of a slave who was like a tutor or a guardian uh, for him, who was kind of in in effect hands-on raising him. He could discipline him, and he had to do whatever this slave said, so he was the heir, but it didn't seem like it at that point in time. Really, it seemed like he was in bondage. That's what the text is saying. And so that's the, like the background of the analogy. Verse 3 then is the point, the point of the analogy. He says, even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. So he's saying, before we came to Christ, we were like this child. Or if you haven't come to Christ yet, you're like this child. In Christ, you can possess everything that God has for you. But before then, it's like you're in bondage. You're under the control of another. You don't have spiritual freedom. You don't have spiritual rights. You don't have spiritual capacity because you're in this bondage. And so then the question becomes, it says, in bondage under the elements of the world, what are we in bondage to? And... You know, I'm not going to take the time to unpack all this this morning, but I think if you read it in the context of the book of Galatians, it's talking about that really, apart from Christ, we're in bondage to our own sin, but we're also under, in a sense, the bondage of the law. Because, uh, you know, the point of the book of Galatians is that the law was not given to justify us, to save us. The law was given to condemn us, to show us that we're sinners, to drive us to Christ. In the previous chapter, he said the law is our tutor, our schoolmaster, to bring us to Jesus. It, the, the purpose of the law is to not show us that we're righteous. It's to show us that we're unrighteous, that we don't measure up, that we can't save ourselves, to drive us to Christ so that we can and be justified, be declared righteous through faith in him. And so I think what he's saying here, in a sense, we're in bondage to both our sin and our self-righteousness. You see, we're both unrighteous and self-righteous. We need to be saved from sin. We need to be saved from self. We need to be saved from our self-righteousness. See, as long as we think we've got it all together, as long as we think we can work our way to God, 
We're in bondage. Uh, you know, Jesus said, he who commits sin is the slave of sin, but the Son shall set you free. So when we understand our sin and our inability to save ourselves and we come to Christ, that's when we're made right with God. And that's when we experience all the fullness of the blessing that we have in Christ. But until then, we're like this child in this bondage under the control of another. So, where do you stand spiritually? And the thing about it, this is just kind of laying a foundation, but if we don't get this, then it's like, what's the big deal about Christmas? You know, apart from this, if we don't see our need for a Savior, at best, we're going to see what the Gospels say about the coming of Christ as just a sweet little story, or maybe just look at it as like a fairy tale. So, Second, what I want you to see then in, in verse 4, and again, this is part of, of the foundation of, of this, but it, it's essential to the Christian faith. And according to verse 4, Jesus can redeem us because he is truly God and truly man without sin. Jesus can redeem us because he is truly God and truly man without sin. Let's look at verse 4. It says, at first, uh, when the fullness of the time had come. And in the Greek language, there's two different words for time. One is chronos, from which we get our word chronology, like time in the sense of seconds and days and uh, minutes, years, that kind of thing. But there's another word, kairos, and and that's the word that he uses here. So so it's saying at, at God's exact appointed moment, he sent his son. Now, we should know from the book of Daniel, if you've been around for the last few months, that God in the Old Testament specifically laid out a time frame for when the Messiah would come. So there's an allusion to that here, I think. But you can also look at it as God sovereignly orchestrated uh, the, the world and the events of the world for Jesus to come at a time in history where his message could be spread. So at the God's exact moment, Jesus came. And isn't it interesting, it says the fullness of time, that now we date time in the big picture based on the coming of Christ? I mean, there's no reputable historian who denies the reality of Jesus as a person. Now, there's certainly many people who would deny his resurrection, who would deny his deity, and those kind of things, although I think they're doing it based more on their presuppositions than the evidence. But no reputable historian denies that there was a person by the name of Jesus who lived, and that's how we define time. But, you know, beyond just a moment in time, but that is important because, you know, this is one of the things that separates Christianity from other religions. It's not a set of rules, it's not a philosophy. It's based on a person who existed in time and space and made particular claims and ultimately based on the claim that he is the Son of God, born of a virgin, who lived, who died for our sins, and who rose from the dead. So if you're investigating Christianity, you can investigate it in a historical sense. You don't have to just look at it in a philosophical kind of sense. But if you look at the next three uh, phrases here, they're very important theologically. It says, God sent forth his son. This is his deity. 
As one of the ancient creeds says, Jesus is very God of very God. He's the eternal Son of God, equal with the Father. I mean, when you read the Gospels, one of the things to look for is when the religious leaders tried to kill him. Because when they tried to kill him, it usually meant he had just claimed to be God. Like when he said in John chapter 5, my father is working and I'm working even until now. And it says they took up stones to stone him because he called God my father. Because no Jew would say that, making himself equal with God. He said in John chapter 10 verse 30, I and my father are one. And they tried to kill him. John eight fifty eight before Abraham was, I am. Uh, when Thomas said, my Lord and my God in John chapter 20, Jesus said, blessed are you, uh, Thomas. So uh, Jesus claims to be God. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word uh, dwelt, uh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and, and, and truth. So the Bible here is claiming that Jesus is God, but then He says that God sent forth His Son, but it says, born of a woman. In other words, Jesus' conception was different because he didn't have an earthly biological father. That's the miracle, but his birth wasn't any different than any other birth. He was born of a woman. So this speaks of his humanity. And, and, and the, the Bible's claim is not that Jesus is partially God, partially man, but he's 100% God, 100% man, two natures in one person, not intermingled together, but two unique nature, natures uh, in this one person. Uh, Colossians 2.9, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That's who Jesus is in a sentence. In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Matthew 1, and 23 says that all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child. He's born of a woman, bear a son. God sent forth his son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. That's who Jesus is. But then notice the last phrase of verse 4. It says that he was born under the law. And so we were in bondage to our sin. We were in bondage to the law. But Jesus came being born under the law. You're saying he played by the rules he set. He placed himself under you know, the authority of God and the word of God, the, the, the law of God. But he perfectly fulfilled the law so that means he is the spotless lamb of God. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So when you put this all together, here's what it means. In order for Jesus to save us, all three of these things have to be true. He has to be the Son of God. He has to be born of a woman. And he has to be born under the law, fulfilling the law. Why? Because only as God can he make an infinite sacrifice for the sins of the entire world. Only as a human being can he actually be our substitute. 
And only in fulfilling the law can he be righteous to be qualified to make the sacrifice. But even beyond that, what happens on the cross is that as our sins are laid on him, the spotless lamb of God, his righteousness, because he perfectly fulfilled the law, is now credited to us in the great exchange. And this is the good news of Christmas, Easter, the good news of the world, that even though I'm a sinner... And and you're a sinner, and we can't save ourselves, even though the law condemns us. Jesus came and fulfilled the law, and he died to give us righteousness, so only he is qualified to be our Savior. So think about it this way. Um, In 1995, uh, Captain Scott O'Grady, a U.S. Air Force fighter pilot, was on a mission over Bosnia, and he was shot down. And it, it was a tricky situation because of what was going on. Bosnia, Serbia, all those things there. It, it, I mean, the ni- name of the operation was Operation No-Fly Zone. And so, it, you know, there, there's just a, a lot of political complications to it. And, and so, you know, it was questionable for a while. You know, was he alive? Those kind of things. He had a vague capture on the ground uh, for six days. And, you know, he had a call sign of Basher 52 that he, that he had to use. And so, uh, you know, a decision had to be made about how all this was going to be handled and about his uh, potential rescue and, and, and those kind of things. And that decision went through the military ranks, went all the way to the White House. And uh, President Clinton, you know, decided decided that you know, we'd rescue him. The uh, military came up with a plan. They sent in a couple of helicopters full of Marines uh, when they located him, and they were able to extract him without incident. But just think for a second. If President Clinton, when he was faced with that decision, said, well, I'm going to go rescue him, that'd be kind of ridiculous, Right? That wouldn't be exactly what he's supposed to do as a president. He should send the people that are trained and qualified to actually rescue someone. But but the point of Galatians 4.4 is that Jesus, uh, that, that God couldn't dispatch anybody else to come and rescue us from our sin. Because nobody else was qualified. Only he could handle it. Only he could do the job. And so the Son of God, who could make an infinite sacrifice for the sins of the world, was born of a woman so he could die as our substitute. And he perfectly fulfilled the law, did what none of us could ever do. And and so he then is the only one who was qualified to be our Savior, which is why we should trust him. And then third... And again, that's just kind of the foundation. And, and then I think the, the text kind of just, you know, the point ultimately really comes in verse 5. Because it says that Jesus came to redeem those who were under the law. That we might receive the adoption as sons. And so, why did Jesus come? Jesus came to redeem us from our spiritual bondage. Now, redeem, it's a beautiful word. You know, there's certain words in the New Testament that to understand salvation, you just got to understand. And this is one of those words. So, redeem here is a form of a Greek word that's ex agarazo. 
And ex is a prefix that means out of. Agorazo comes from something that in Greek cities that they called the agora. And it was like the marketplace. It was kind of like the uh, forerunner to a mall, except it was outdoors. Maybe if you've ever been to like an outdoor big flea market, maybe it's something like that, probably a little nicer. But there was one problem with these agoras. In the middle of them, there would be a slave market. And so one of the things that they did in these outdoor marketplaces were that they sold slaves. But the, the word agorazo, ex-agorazo, out of the agora, was used to refer to someone uh, going to the slave market, buying a slave, and setting that slave free. So, what did Jesus do for us in coming in his incarnation, in his death on the cross, in his, regu- in his uh, resurrection? Jesus ex us. He bought us out of our slavery to sin. He paid the ransom price to his father to redeem us. There's a church in Philadelphia, First African Baptist Church, that has a a, a sign on it that reads, founded in 1809 as one of the first black Baptist churches in America. Later, two members sold themselves into slavery to free a slave to serve as pastor. The pastor was James Burroughs, who served the church from 1832 to 1844. He was born a slave and living in Northampton County, Virginia, according to the official history of the church. He felt that he was called to preach, but his master refused to allow him the privilege He then persuaded his master to permit him to come to Philadelphia to earn money to purchase his freedom. So he had two cousins in Philadelphia, Samuel and John Bivens, that traveled to Virginia to take his place in bondage. Meanwhile, while he was in Philadelphia, he earned money to fulfill his promise that he would buy the cousins out of captivity, which he did. I mean, what a sacrifice that these two men would put themselves in his place place so that he could be set free and then he earned money to pay for them to be set free and in some sense that's a picture of Jesus redeeming us because Jesus uh, I mean he made a greater sacrifice he left the glory and splendor and majesty and worship of heaven of heaven he came to earth God born as a baby God living as a man God uh, uh, forsaken and uh, denied and betrayed and and tortured, dying for our sins. But in his death, he paid the price to spiritually set us free. He ex us. He redeemed us. He bought us out of this bondage that we see in the first three verses. Well, the question is, how did he do that? Well, You know, Scripture interprets Scripture. Scripture explains uh, Scripture. And if you look back in in Galatians chapter 3, it tells us how this works. It says in verse 10, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. And what is the curse? It says, For it is written... Quoting the Old Testament, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Well, we talked about this in Daniel. If you read the Deuteronomy, you read in Leviticus, 
You know, there's commands given. And there's blessings promised for obedience. Time after time it says, if you do this, you're blessed. If you do this, you're blessed. But at the same time, it lists all these sins. And it says, if you do this, you're cursed. If you do this, you're cursed. If you do this, you're cursed. So when we sin, God says you're cursed. If you tell a lie, God says you're cursed. Sexual immorality, God says you're cursed. And and on and on through the list. But then verse 13 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So on the cross, in a sense, as Jesus was bearing our sins, 2 Corinthians 5.21, he knew no sin, became sin for us. As he was bearing our sin and the wrath of God was poured out on him, there's a sense in which God says, you're cursed, you're cursed, you're cursed. He was cursed so we could be blessed. He was cursed so we could be set free. He redeemed us by bearing the curse, by absorbing the wrath of God, by paying the price for our sins to his father and that's where freedom is and that's what christmas is all about but see he just didn't take us from something our sin and our bondage to sin but he did it to bring us to something because the purpose of redemption is adoption as blessed children of god I mean, the the last part of verse 5 says, to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And the word that literally means for the purpose of. This is why I did it. So that we could know God. So that we could become a part of his family. You know, to me... Adoption's an amazing thing. We've never done it. We've, we've been a sponsor family for some kids at, at Kingswood before, but we've never adopted. There's families at True Life who have. What an incredible thing that you would take a child who's an orphan and make them your own. And there's cost, there's sacrifice that goes into that. It's a picture of the gospel, but it falls short. Because... When God adopted us, he didn't take a poor, helpless little child abandoned by its parents. He took rebels. He took his enemies, the Bible says. Those who have uh, turned away from him and chosen to go our own way and chosen our sin over him and we've done our own thing. And he paid the ultimate price and that he sacrificed his son. His son by nature, not by adoption. The one who is eternally one with him. He came. He sent forth his son. He poured out his blood so that we could become children of God. So that we could be like firstborn sons in the sight of God. Listen, there's no second-class citizens in heaven. I I, I mean, in in verse 6 and 7, he enumerates these blessings. Remember, we don't earn these blessings. We possess them in Christ. And if you're in Christ, if you're a child of God, all of these things belong to you. And he says, believe it and live like it. I mean, he wants us to get rid of our sorry thinking of, you know, thinking that we somehow have to earn what Jesus has already done for us. He says, because you are sons, 
God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. He says, as adopted children of God, we have the Spirit of God, God Himself living on the inside of us. We know God not as some faraway creator, but as our Father, Abba, Father. That maybe first word that a little Hebrew boy or girl would learn. You know, we've seen in Daniel how glorious and majestic and powerful and sovereign he is. He's that transcendent, but he's so close to us in Christ that we can call him Abba, Father, too. Isn't that amazing? But it's only through Jesus coming and what he did for us. He says we're no longer slaves, spiritually speaking. We're sons. We've been set free. And that we're heirs of God. That everything that belongs to Christ, if we're in Christ, now we share in that. We're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ right now. And we'll experience this with him forever in heaven. And so again, the point of all this is that Christmas is more than just family and traditions and fun and gifts. And it's more than a church service. It's more than, um, you know, the story of a baby in a manger and those kind of things. The heart of Christmas is that God sent his son to redeem us so we can be adopted into his family. Are you a child of God? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.